It's uh, really good to be with all of you again this morning as we get to continue um, our journey through the discovery of the incredible wonders of the revelation of God through this incredible thing, God's Word, the Bible. Uh, as many of you know, if you've been around, we are currently uh, in the book of Romans, which is the letter that Paul is writing to the church in Rome uh, on his third missionary journey. Uh, he is writing this letter to the church in Rome because he is planning to move his headquarters from Antioch to Rome to be in the center of things. And as he writes this book, it is really a book that is clarifying the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the intricacies, the details, the theological realities, uh, and yet the simplicity and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this letter is wanting to make sure with the church in Rome that there is clarity about Paul's understanding of the gospel so that they, when he arrives, don't spend two years trying to uh, weed through and work through all the details. So it's a very detailed book. But even though it is very detailed, it is still presenting the gospel basics, the, the real basic realities of what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ, what makes the redemptive story of God the redemptive story of God. So, so far, in its simplicity, here is what Paul has done inspired by the Holy Spirit. He has shown us in chapter 1, 2, 3, and a part of 4, this simple truth. It is not by works that you are going to be able to be made right with God. It is by faith. It is by trusting God's work for you that you are made right with God, not your work for God that makes you right with God. That is the entire simplicity of the first four chapters. Not by works will you be made right with God, but by faith, trusting God's work for you. Now, how Paul unpacked that simplicity was masterful and wondrous, right? Chapter 1, the Gentile people are indeed guilty of sin. They are indeed, uh, they should be recipients of judgment. Check that box. Chapter 2, the Jewish people who have the law of God and have relationship with God, they are also full of sin despite having the law and are recipients and should be recipients of judgment by God. So you're like, whoa, the Gentiles, check, guilty, judge, judgment is theirs. The Jewish people, check, guilty, judgment is theirs. And why does he do this in chapter 1 and chapter 2? To show in chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So here's what that tells us. Your works, Gentile or Jew, you have the law or you don't, are not going to be able to make you right with God. So it is not by works that we are going to be able to be made right with God. Then, for the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, he begins to unpack the gift of God that is our encounter with the redemptive work of Jesus and his redemptive work for us so that he can begin to say, look, what sets us right with God is a work of God on our behalf for us. He's got to set that up in order to say, now how do you engage with this work of God? Well, you do by faith. One of the questions that has come up uh, in the early part of the book of Romans, chapter 2 and 3, uh, and now 4, is from the Jewish people, rightly so, as Paul goes, look, uh, Gentiles and Jews, you're in the same boat, your works don't cut it. The question is, 
Well, then what good was it to be Jewish? What good was it to have history? What good was it to have the law? And Paul answered that question in multiple ways. He started by saying, a lot of good. The revelation of God was passed to all of mankind through you. That's pretty awesome. You were the recipients of the oracles of God, the revelation of God. You knew God as a people group. You had the benefit of God's protection as a people group. There were lots of benefits, except for it didn't make you right for eternal life to be with God forever, making you right with God because you were Jewish. And then, in the most recent part, chapter 4, where we've been, Paul says, now listen. Because it's God's work for you that makes you right with God and not your work for God that makes you right with God, it is therefore going to be by faith, by trusting God's work for you, that you are going to be able to integrate into belonging to God, into the family of God. And he says this, let's take a look at that history that you're wondering if it had any value and let's see what we learn from it. Remember last week we looked at Abraham who was the blood father of the Jewish people, the father of flesh. In other words, there was a bloodline, and if you were part of the bloodline of Abraham, then you were part of the Jewish people, which meant you were part of the covenant people, which meant you belonged to God. And we discovered last week that as Paul unpacked the life of Abraham, we discovered that Abraham was made right with God by his trust in God's work for him, God's promises for him, that was credited to him as righteousness, and that all happened before Abraham was circumcised, before the covenant of belonging, before the law was given to Moses later on. So Abraham wasn't Jewish yet when he received his righteousness by faith. And so Paul argues he was more Gentile than Jew when God gave him righteousness. Why? Because Abraham was not meant to primarily be the bloodline father of the Jewish people, but the faith father of all who would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the future. He is our father not by blood, but by faith. And it is his faith that was intended to be for us all an example so that we would know how we are made right with God. Unbelievable. So where do we go from here? Now we sit here with this revelation. Abraham is the father, not of the Jewish people alone, but of all who will believe. Let's go take a look and see where this goes next. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter four. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, page 1042, 1042. If you're using a smart device or your own Bible that you brought, Romans chapter four, verse 16 is where we're gonna be. Romans chapter four, verse 16. So we've just come out of this descriptor of Abraham being not the father of flesh, but the father of faith, and that it is by his faith that we connect to him. So it is not those who carry his blood that are those who belong to God. It is those who carry his faith, the same faith Abraham had. Okay, now take a look at what Paul writes here in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, not on works in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. So what is he saying here? He's saying, look guys, the reason it becomes logical that being made right with God could not have been through our works, besides the fact that we couldn't even pull the works off, right? Let's just leave that off, for the, ta off the table for a second. 
theoretically, imagine that the Jewish people could have pulled it off. They could have done it. They could have lived by the law. Even if that were the case, it could never have been by works, those who adhere by the law. You know why? Because when God made his promise to Abraham, what did he say to Abraham? I'm going to birth a nation out of you, reveal myself to that nation, and through that nation, who will be blessed? All the nations of the world. So if it was Those who adhere to the law, they are children of God, and everybody that doesn't are not. If it was by works, then the very promise of God must be compromised. Because then the nations of the world are not blessed through the Jewish people, they are cursed through the Jewish people. Because the only people adhering to the law would have then been those who had the law, and therefore everybody else would be cursed. So the very promise of God that this is going to be for all a blessing could not happen unless it was by faith, not by works. Now, check this out. This is super cool. He adds another word into this that is so incredible. That is why it depends on faith in order, listen now, that the promise may rest on grace. See, what he's saying here is, guys, this entire journey of us being reconciled to God could never be a journey that would depend on us, no matter what, because then God's promise to us that he would come and rescue us and he would bless us would be undone if we are rescuing ourselves. Do you see what he's saying? By definition, for God to be faithful, this had to always be us trusting God's work for us, not our work for God. It had to be by faith. It couldn't be by works. Otherwise, the promise couldn't be fulfilled. Now, take a look what he says here. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares Abraham's faith, or the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. See what Paul's doing here? Now watch this, watch this. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, this is now Abraham, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and, uh, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Do you see what he just wrote? He just went like this. Guys, it had to be through faith. You see, our rightness with God does not come through our works for God. It has to come through our faith in God, our faith in his works for us, just as our father Abraham had faith. He is our father of faith, not our father of flesh, of blood. And so if we have the faith of Abraham, then we also are made right with God, right? You got that so far? Then he said, here's Abraham's faith. Here's the faith he had. And what did he describe? Abraham's faith. 
oh man, he just hoped against hope. He did. He hoped against hope. In fact, when God made a promise about him having a nation, he was almost 100. And I didn't say it. The Bible did. He was as good as dead, right? I mean, he, he was like as good as dead. And his wife was 90 and barren. She couldn't have kids anymore. But despite that, despite what was obvious, despite what he saw, Abraham's faith never wavered in his belief of God. Isn't that awesome? Man, what a faith, right? And that faith, uh, it stood and grew into wonder. It did not waver despite unbelief. Wow. And this is the faith we're talking about when we talk about our father of faith and the faith we have as his children. Isn't that exciting? Not really. (laughs) Did you just hear what I read? Are you a tad concerned? You ought to be a tad concerned. If you're not, then you're not thinking this through, right? I mean, does that sound like your faith? I'm just curious. Because if it does, I'd love to chat with you afterwards. Because it doesn't sound like mine. It doesn't, honestly. A number of years ago, when I was a student ministries pastor uh, in uh, Monterey, California, uh, my dad had transitioned from the military uh, into a career in commodities and trade in Africa. Africa is a strange continent. It's beautiful, it's wondrous, it's corrupt, it's crazy. It's not corrupt because the people there are evil. It's corrupt because the people there are trying to survive. And when you live in, a, in an entire society of survival, then everybody's trying to carve a niche out for themselves. We kind of do the same thing. We just do it in a little less uh, dramatic and corrupt way, right? And we're just equally as, uh, as obsessed with that. But in a survival culture, it, it plays out differently. Everybody's tricking everybody. So, When you're a person who wants to go and do business in a culture like that, and you want to be full of integrity, just an FYI, a lot of times when we do things God's way, it doesn't go well, okay? If you ever wondered, oh my gosh, you know, if I'm just going to live full of integrity, then that's, God's going to bless that, and it's going to be awesome. If you live full of integrity in a planet of death and sin, you are going to get burned a bunch, because everybody else is tricking you. And the reason people lie is because it works out well usually, right? Now, we all know in the long run it doesn't, but in the short run it sure as heck does, doesn't it? I mean, integrity doesn't bode well in the world we live in, and yet we live by integrity. Why? Because our purpose is to make the gospel beautiful, to honor Christ, and to trust that God's way in the end always plays out to freedom and not to bondage. But when you live by integrity in a, in a corrupt space, it is difficult. So my dad tried a number of business endeavors, and a lot of times, by no fault of his own, things did not go well because people steal, lie, and trick, Right? So I kind of got a bit tired of that. I was a student ministries pastor. And so, you know, uh, pastors are closer to God than the rest of humans, right? (laughs) Kidding. If you actually believe that, then please know. I'm totally joking. Um, So I I figured I would just ask God um, for some help. And so I said, look, God, here's the deal. You know, my dad is a good guy. Uh, He's full of integrity. He's honoring the gospel. He's working in Africa. I'm not asking you to make him rich. I'm not asking you to bless his business beyond compare. All I'm asking you is to give him a break. Just have something he actually does work because he actually does it right and then somebody steals or lies or does something stupid and then it ends up going south. And it's stressful to my parents and stressful to everybody around. And so uh, after praying that for a while, uh, something really did work out. My dad uh, ended up hooking up with some people that were in the coffee business in Africa. He got some trucks full of coffee beans and as you know, the coffee business isn't a bad business to be in. And so if you're shipping coffee beans from Africa, that works out well. He got the coffee beans from Sierra Leone and he got them into Freetown in Sierra Leone. He called me from Sierra Leone and said, oh my gosh, this is it. It was a lot of coffee beans and he he got it at a great price. And so this was the big break. This would take all of the struggle for years.
years and make it all worthwhile. And once those coffees got, coffee got on the ship and got to the U.S. Uh, uh, border, we would be sitting in a whole new ballgame of business. And that would perpetuate ongoing business then because you'd have a bunch of money. So that night in Freetown, my dad uh, went to bed waiting for the next morning to get the coffee loaded onto trucks. How many of you guys ever saw the movie Blood Diamond? Do you guys, okay, if you haven't, don't watch it. It's violent, it's terrible, it's full of terrible language. Don't feel guilty that you watched it. It's okay, I watched it too. It's a, it's a, it's a true story. And, um, and it's, a, it's an incredibly uh, crazy true story. And because it's true, it, it has all that stuff in it. And, and so it's about these rebels that come into Freetown in Sierra Leone and, and take over Freetown and, and burn everything and, and kill and murder a bunch of people, right? Guess which night that happened? I'll never guess. The night my dad was sleeping in Freetown with his coffee trucks. You know what they did to his coffee trucks? They burned them. They burned all the coffee trucks. And my dad crawled out of Freetown. He survived, obviously, because he attends this church now. So that works out really well. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and he got out. And I, I remember when my dad finally got a hold of uh, me and said, yeah, the coffee's gone, everything's gone, because rebels came into Freetown that night, of all the nights on planet Earth. I remember saying to God, you know, if I could stop believing in you, I, so, I totally would right now. No, legit, I would stop. I wanted to stop. It was irritating that I had to keep believing in him because I couldn't just like not believe that he exists because I knew he existed, but I could stop talking to him. So I did. I just said, look, I might be a student ministries pastor, but I can read this thing just fine and I'll come up with some sermons and I don't know what else to do well in my life. So I'm just going to keep doing this for now. But honestly, I don't even want to serve you. I mean, what kind of a God do you ask simple things like that and then he does nothing. You see, during that event, my faith was unwavering. Can you tell? No, no, it wasn't unwavering. I lost faith. I didn't, I didn't know what God was up to. I didn't understand. I, I hated him for what he did. I really did. I'm not, I'm not like, you're like, you know, you didn't. No, no, I really did. I really did. And it was a giant struggle. Now, I will tell you, in hindsight, years later, did God use that event to teach me unbelievable things about his sovereignty and about his amazing story he authors, despite what circumstances show me? Of course he has. Has that resolved itself to a point where now I'm so grateful for that story? Yes. Yes, but my faith was not unwavering then. It was a joke. It was a struggle. It, it was full of doubt. Years later, after that event, um, God allowed us to be part of this incredible story at Mosaic, and then we ended up uh, recognizing with the gospel that we are called to be missional in life, to invade dark and hard and unredeemed places and do something about that. And that led us into the journey of, of caring for orphans and children from hard places, which led us into the journey of discovering my four beautiful and amazing children from Ethiopia. And and discovering them, we went through that crazy process of adoption. And then after uh, our four biological children and our four adopted children came together into one grand and wondrous family, we realized when you do stuff like that, it's hard on everybody, right? Super hard on all eight of my kids because they're all dealing with trauma and struggle and questions and what does all this mean? And they're clashing and they're working and, and it's just a giant like trying to merge everything. And then that creates a giant mess for the parents as well. Uh, and, and it's not because because of the adoption, it's because when hurt and pain and struggle uh, comes into play, it's hard. 
I remember about a year and a half ago, we were, we were probably in some of the hardest parts of that journey, and, um, and I was beginning to just lose optimism. I have a dysfunctional optimism, and I don't say that like, ha oh, ha, oh, no, legitimately, it's dysfunctional. When I should genuinely be concerned, I'm really not. When I should really be stressed, I'm really not. And then people are like, what is wrong with you, man? Like, the world really is falling apart, and you really ought to take notice. I'm like, yeah, it's all good. You know, so it's a very dysfunctional optimism. And I was sitting... Um, um, at the, uh, actually at the Irish pub right on um, Marsh Road in Avalon. I remember it. I was sitting with my wife and it was hard. And I remember saying to Brooke, I'm sick of optimism. I really am. I'm sick of my optimism. I'm sick of always being optimistic. I'm sick of believing that this is going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. I'm, I'm done. Like this is, this is the, I don't know. I don't know. See, in the midst of some very, very dark and hard times, watching my family implode, my faith was not unwavering. I didn't go, oh, God, God is so good. God is good all the time. I was sitting at a pub going, I'm done. I'm done. That sounds weirder than it ought to. I was eating shepherd's pie. So <laughs> just saying, okay, just saying. And so sitting there and I was done. I was done. And this was a year and a half ago, folks. It was a year and a half. This wasn't like back in my past before I really knew Jesus. This was a year and a half ago. In my dailiness, I don't know about you, but I struggle with belief. Not like, uh, is Jesus real? Is he not? Is Jesus real? Is he not? That happens at times too. If you've never had the thought, maybe God doesn't exist, then you're super weird, right? I mean, it's hard sometimes to like, oh, that's a, but you know what my struggle with unbelief is? It's when my wife does something that frustrates me. Uh, do you struggle with unbelief then too? See, it's not actually about you. It's not actually about how you feel and what you're supposed to have and your entitlements, but I sure believe it in that moment. It feels like it's about me, and that was personal, and I don't like it. And so then I respond with incredible gospel centrality toward my wife, right? <laughs> Just like all of you. No, no, it doesn't go so well. With my kids, you know, at least with my kids, I have, through the entire adoption journey and the entire raising eight kid journey, I have always responded with grace and kindness toward them too. No, 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 I struggle every day. I wonder if they will survive because I want to kill them sometimes, right? (laughs) And then other times, they behave with such grace and beauty and I'm like, wow. And on occasion, I also get it right. Sometimes I do believe in the moment and I say just the right thing and, and I totally don't take things personally and it works beautifully. And then sometimes I don't. But do you see the dilemma we're running into? We just read about our father of faith, the one that it was a credit to him as righteousness because his faith was unwavering when God told him, I'm going to bless you with these promises. And it even says, even when he looked at his old body and his barren wife, he was like, it doesn't matter. God is bigger than all of this. Wow. And then I look at my faith and I'm like, I'm so dead. <laughs> I mean, don't you wonder, am I even saved? No, I'm serious. Like, I'm not like, like if, 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 the, if there's such a gap between what I've just described and what we just read about Abraham, then is the, sa- the faith I have even saving me? Is, is it causing me to belong? Well, the truth is I'm not saved. And No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you all are like, what? No, 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 no. No, the news is much better than that. Okay, <laughs> let's go take a look. So let's talk about Abraham's faith, okay? Some other things were written about Abraham that we ought to know. Okay, you ready? 
We're going to go to Genesis chapter 15. You don't have to turn with me, but you can. We're going to be there for a while. So Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to go fast. So if you happen to know where it is, just go, but I'm not going to do page numbers and all that stuff right now. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Listen to this. After these things, this is after God called Abraham out and showed him wonderful things, amazing things, miraculous things. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Wow, isn't that awesome? But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is this dude from Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Wow. Unwavering faith, isn't it? It's just beautiful. God goes, Abraham, I am going to be your shield and your strength. Uh, Where's the kid? I have no kid. You said there'd be a kid. There's no kid. The only kid I have in my house is the dude from Damascus, and he's going to get my inheritance. And is that going to be the promise that you fulfill? You didn't give me a child. Unwavering, isn't it? But thankfully, this was before things were credited to Abraham as righteousness. So this is the pre-beautiful faith accredited as righteousness moment, right? So take a look. The very next verse, verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and the number of the stars if you're able. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Oh, there it is. So as long as it's before you know Jesus, you can doubt all you want, but after, then it matters. Okay, let's take a look. Chapter 16. (laughs) Chapter 16. I'm not gonna read it to you. It's about Hagar. So listen, this is what Abraham does. I'm gonna give you a child, Abraham, you and Sarah. Remember in, in Romans, despite Sarah's barrenness in my old age, I believe you. You know what he does? He takes a servant from his household named Hagar, who's younger and not barren, and he says to his wife, I'm gonna go ahead and sleep with her get her pregnant because you clearly can't do it and I might have a shot even though I'm old but us two together that's never going to happen so we're going to go that route and then we will produce an heir and God's promises will be realized so he sleeps with Hagar she gets pregnant and they have a kid you're weirded out right now aren't you so am I Abraham's unwavering faith, believing despite Sarah's barrenness in his old age that God would fulfill his promises had him sleeping with Hagar and producing a child with her didn't go so well, just FYI, okay? It didn't go well at all. It created all sorts of mess, okay? So God comes back to Abraham and he's like, okay, let's try this again. Let's take a look. Chapter 17. In chapter 17, God tells Abraham, listen, you belong to me now and I belong to you and I want you to have an outward sign of that belonging and he establishes the covenant of circumcision, right? So now we've got giant leaps, right? I'm going I'm to do great things through you. Where's the kid? Relax. Relax. Okay, I believe you. Accredited righteousness. Where's Hagar? Right? I mean, you're just like, what? Then right after that, God's like, now come here. You belong to me. I belong to you. There's an outward sign of circumcision. After the circumcision incident, right? The whole thing with the covenant and the beautiful belonging. Chapter 17, verse 15. Here we go. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife... You shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. It's a slight change. We'll get into that another time. I will bless her 
And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and worshiped God. No, no, if you're reading along, it actually says this. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed because he was so happy. No, 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 no. And said to himself, as though God's not hearing, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Ishmael's from Hagar. So here's what Abraham's doing. Literally, he's going like this. The Hagar incident, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't how I was going to work it, Abraham. That was a mistake. I'm going to give Sarah a child. <laughs> Like my wife, Sarah? Yes. <laughs> She's like 90. She's barren. Oh, I think we should go with Ishmael. That's what he said to God. Oh, that Ishmael might live long because your plan, God, with the barren woman and me, the old guy, ain't going to play. So I'm going to throw Ishmael on the table for you. Oh, gosh, unwavering in his faith, isn't he? Unwavering. Oh, it's beautiful. I've never had an incident like Hagar. You guys are all relieved right now, aren't you? Well, that's good, Renault. I mean, just think about his faith took him down some crazy stuff, or his lack of faith, rather. Oh, but it gets better. Oh, it gets better. Then after that, Abraham learned his lesson, and then his faith was unwavering, right? Right? Chapter 20 of Genesis. Chapter 20. Yeah, I, I'm not even going to read this story. I'm just going to tell you. Okay, so Abraham travels with Sarah and they get to this land where the people aren't super godly, right? And, and the king looks at Sarah and goes, boy, she's pretty. She's really beautiful. Now, traditionally in spaces like that, in this time, when a king thought your wife was beautiful, you ran the real risk that the king would just have you killed and take your wife because he's the king and he can do whatever he wants. And so guess what Abraham does? faithful, unwavering belief in God, Abraham. Here's what he does. He tells the king that his wife is his sister. He goes, Sarah, listen, listen. When he asks, I'm gonna say you're my sister and you just nod, okay? So the king goes, man, she's beautiful. Yeah, she's my sister. His wife, his wife. She's my sister. So you know what the king does? The king takes Sarah as his wife because why wouldn't he? It's Abraham's sister, and he says to Abraham, man, she's awesome. I'd like to have her. I'll pay you a bunch of stuff. And, and you know what Abraham does? Of course you do. He says, I was just kidding. She's actually my wife. Sorry, I didn't realize you'd actually take her. No, no. He goes, okay. <laughs> Legit, read the story. Sarah goes home with the king. Abraham, Abraham. It's like, good luck. <laughs> right? I mean, what was he thinking? I don't even get it. Have you ever done that? This is, this is my sister. Can I have her as my wife? Sure, no problem. Sorry, hon. So sorry. No. No, you know what happens? God shows up to the king in a dream before they consummate the marriage, right? So the, the, the king's about to do stuff, like marital stuff with Sarah, and, he's, and God shows up to the king and goes like this. Uh, you shouldn't touch her. Why not? Because she's Abraham's wife. Huh? No, she's Abraham's wife. He lied to you. He did? And by the way, if you touch her, I will kill you and your entire nation. You can read it. God says, I'm going to wipe you all out. 
God, you know, when, when God's serious about something, he's like, look, I just want to be clear. There's a consequence that comes with this just in case you go, oh, I listened to a dream. You're welcome to go try, but then everyone's dead, okay? And so the king's like, what? So he goes to Abraham and he's like, what were you thinking? Are you out of your mind? You told me she was your sister. I took her as my wife. We almost did stuff and God came to me. Thank goodness. Thank you, God. And told me that if I had done that, he would kill me, my whole family, and the entire nation. You almost cost the entire nation their lives. Are you crazy? What were you thinking? I wonder myself, what was Abraham thinking? Well, thankfully, the Bible tells us. Poor Abraham. Would you like your thoughts written down constantly? Here we go. Abraham chapter 20 verse 11. Listen to this. The king says, what did you see that you did such a thing? Verse verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in all of this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Well, that makes sense. Since you might die selling your wife to a king is perfectly appropriate. No. What kind of a man goes, since I might die, I'll just lie about my wife being my sister and have her go with the king and we'll just see how the thing plays out. Are you feeling better about your faith? I sure am feeling better about mine. See, because what's happening here is now we're standing in in an odd spot, aren't we? Because we're trying to reconcile something. On the one hand, Romans says that Abraham's faith was unwavering. It was an an amazing faith accredited to his righteousness and it is the faith that we as people, uh, when we attach to that, when when that's our example, then we also are right with God. And then yet, it tells the story of Abraham and you're like, his life sounds worse than mine when it comes to faith. So which one of those verses is wrong? Right, isn't that what you would ask next? Because they can't both be right. It can't be unwavering and this craziness. Oh, but it can. Oh, but it can, you see, because that is one of the most beautiful discoveries we make in the book of Romans and in the New Testament about our faith and what it really is. See, the trouble you and I are having is that we still equate our faith that saves us, that makes us right with God, with our daily experience of belief and unbelief. And the two are not the same. They are separated. They are separated and they are different, right? What this passage is beginning to clue us into, which the rest of Romans will solidify in extraordinary ways, is that there is a faith that we are the recipients of that is a saving faith that sets us right with God as an act of his grace that then ties us, binds us, enslaves us to righteousness while we also struggle with our expression of belief in the dailiness that comes and goes and waves and goes up and there's doubt and there's, and there's struggle and there's, and there's wonder and there's belief and there's unbelief and that that part of our expression of believing in God is a part of our maturing, our sanctifying process that God is working on just like obedience is an, express, an expression of knowing what is right and wrong and obedience is something we wrestle with throughout our life, maturing and growing in, so also our belief, the fruit of our faith, the fruit of our faith, which is our daily belief or unbelief, wrestles and struggles. But the faith that that is born from, that is not something we created, nor something we must maintain. 
You go, what? Watch, watch. Let's go back to Romans. In Romans chapter four, listen to what he says now. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, it says. Now listen to verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Oh, watch. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, look what he just did. He said there is a faith that is an act of grace from God that allows you and I, when we encounter the redemptive story of God, the gospel, to come awake to the reality that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did. And when we believe that, when we express belief because faith has, as a gift of grace, been affected for us, then that faith allows righteousness to be counted to us because Christ's righteousness becomes ours. And from that day forward, you and I will wrestle with belief and unbelief throughout the day, throughout the month, throughout the years. But that is the fruit of the ongoing maturing process of what has been gifted to us. Am I making this stuff up, you say? Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. Listen now. Therefore, since you are surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses, that's a statement of all the people that have lived throughout history that have followed God, and you go, there there it is, right? Cast off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run the race marked out for you with perseverance. Now listen, fixing your eyes on Jesus, wait for it now, the author and finisher of your faith. Who authored my faith? Who authored your faith? God. Do you know why? Do you know why he authored it? Because if I authored my own faith, then my faith becomes a new work, doesn't it? It's a new place for me to boast in, isn't it? Well, at least I believed than Bob over there. Uh, by the way, if there's a Bob sitting out there, it wasn't personal, okay? Other than Bob out there, I believed. And so we would boast even in the work of faith. But here's what the Bible starts showing us, and Romans is gonna show us this in extraordinary fashion. If you encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ and it made sense to you and you came awake to it and you were like, wow, Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did, and in that moment you came to faith, that was an act of God's grace and mercy toward you. It was a gift given to you. Your faith was part of that gift and you expressed that faith because God allows us to participate even when he gifts it. But we cannot boast in that faith. Now watch, watch this. That faith saves us. That faith will show itself true to us no matter what. I'll read you a passage in a second and show you that, okay? But as a fruit of that faith, we are catapulted into a maturing process, a sanctification. We are being sanctified, made like Jesus. So our obedience and our belief, daily belief, and our uh, trust in God's work through our circumstances will increase. See those stories I told you about my journey? They have all affected great maturity in my understanding of God. And now circumstances have less impact on me than they used to. 
They still have impact, but less. And hopefully in 20 years, it'll be even less as God continues to show me his faithfulness and my expressed daily faith becomes more belief than unbelief. But that's part of the joy of maturing or sanctifying. That's not going to save me or unsave me. Do you know what that means? That means you and I are free in our doubts and our struggles and our fears. We are not bound. We don't have to sit back on a couch and wonder, because I didn't believe today, am I still saved? No, 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 no. That faith was a gift to you, as it was to Abraham. It was accredited to him as righteousness while he was in the midst of great struggle and unbelief. If you go read that passage in Romans again now, you'll see it says, despite unbelief, his faith did not waver. What does that mean? It means that despite the fact that he wrestled with his unbelief, God's faith did not waver. Do you know what that means? That the faith God gifts you and I with, that will never waver. Do you know why? Because God is always faithful. God is always faithful. You are not. I am not. So if I had to hold my own faith before God, then I would have to be worried every day that my unfaithfulness would undo my faith. But God goes, no, the faith that saves you, I credited it to you. I gave it to you. I authored it. I will finish it. And I will make it show itself true. In the meantime, wrestle with your unbelief and stop being foolish, right? Are we supposed to wrestle with unbelief and try to undo unbelief? Yes. Are you supposed to try to be obedient versus disobedient? Yes. Why? Because obedience has impact on your current life, doesn't it? It affects freedom and disobedience. It affects bondage, as does lack of faith or faith. When you don't have faith, it affects things on this planet for your life and your freedom. It does. And when you have faith, it also does. Belief and faith affect freedom, and disbelief and lack of faith affect bondage on this planet. But the faith that saves you, that binds you and enslaves you to righteousness, that's not your faith. That's a gift of God to you, which now means that when you doubt, And when you wrestle, and when you struggle with unbelief, it can produce great worship, can it not? Do you know why? Because instead of that undoing your salvation, it only confirms God's grace and mercy. See, when I I struggle with unbelief, I can go like this now. (laughs) Enemy of God, I am totally in unbelief right now. I don't even know if Jesus exists fully in my head. And so what? Hadn't changed squat. Because I'm still a child of God, I still belong to him, and he will still save me because my faith that saves me isn't mine. Mine's faltering right now. Mine's wavering all over the place. But his is sound and set. And that is beautiful. I close with this. Listen to this. And may this verse become as beautiful to you as it has been for me over these years of my faith, wavering at times, and God whispering and saying, don't worry, Renaud. Your faith will always waver, but mine will never waver. Watch, listen to this. This is out of 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you will be grieved by various trials. When does our faith tend to waver? When we're in the middle of trials and things are not going the way we want them to, right? That's when things are hunky-dory, wonderful and awesome. God is blessing up the wazoo. Does your faith waver then? Oh, where is God? It's such a blessing to be in this place. No, we waver when God feels absent and when trials and struggles are coming. So he says, look, look, now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Listen now, so that 
the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. See, we've often read that like God takes me through trials so I can prove to him that I'm faithful and then that will bring him glory. But when you look at the way this is written in its original language, it actually says the exact opposite. It says this, when you're under trial and you think you're wavering, the faith God gave you will prove itself to you. And then it will be to the praise of who? Of Jesus. Because you won't say, look at me, I was faithful. You will say, I was wavering, and yet he was faithful. Let's pray. God, you're so good, again, so ridiculously good, that in the midst of struggle and fear and unbelief and doubt, that you give me the privilege to participate in my maturing and my sanctification by wrestling with those fears and, and doubts and by, by asking you to make me believe when I don't believe and, and by wrestling with choosing to believe on this planet, even in prayer and things that I'm asking for and, and different ways of living or conflict I'm in, to choose to believe, to choose to remember. And just like obedience, God, thank you that I get to wrestle with that, that I get to fight for belief and I get to fight for faith as it is expressed. And yet in the midst of that great fight, that great maturing, that great sanctification, whenever I falter, whenever I fail, whenever I have unbelief, whenever I do not hold to faith, I can be secure and sure in this, that the gift of faith that you authored in me when I encountered the gospel to see clearly who you were, Jesus, and what you had done, that that faith is not something I brought to you. It's something you brought to me. And so it will remain genuine because you are faithful, even when I am not. In that, I worship you because you are that good. Thank you. As you said in this beautiful passage in Romans, it had to be by faith, not by works, so that it would be an act of grace from you, not an act of work from us. So I stand here, God, with my fellow brothers and sisters who know you as Savior. Today, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Today, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. And thank you that both can coexist simultaneously because one is of you and one is of us. You are truly gracious. We love you, Jesus. Amen.